Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Today's episode continues our multi-part series on border wars, a detailed examination of the conflicts that define Missouri's borders and boundaries, as well as the state's role in the Civil War and its aftermath. Our guest today is Kristen Epps. She holds a PhD in history from the University of Kansas. She presently serves as an associate professor of history at Kansas State University and as the managing editor of Kansas History, a journal of the Central Plains. Her book, Slavery on the Periphery, the Kansas-Missouri Border in the Antebellum and Civil War Eras, was published in 2016 by the University of Georgia Press. Welcome to our Missouri, Kristen. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, could you tell us a little bit about the origins of this book project? Absolutely. So back in 2001, I had an archival internship at the Kansas Historical Society in Topeka. And the project that I was working on there is called Territorial Kansas Online. And we were digitizing primary sources about Kansas's territorial period, which stretched from 1854 to 1861, uh, what we commonly call Bleeding Kansas. And while I was in the archives, I started to notice that primary sources were mentioning the presence of enslaved people in Kansas. But these people were not really fully fleshed out human beings. They only garnered you know, a few sentences and most. Uh, and I really wanted to hear more about their stories. So of course, there were many references to slavery as an institution, but I thought, well, wait a sec, slavery already existed in Kansas. You know, chattel slavery was not an institution confined to the South. Well, why isn't this story better known? These people's lives are just as important for us to understand. And I, I very much believed, even at that point in my career, that every story matters, not just the stories of the rich, the famous, the powerful. So then when I started my PhD and I was working on my dissertation, which is the basis of the book, I decided to explore this. You know, how did enslaved people come to the Kansas-Missouri border? What was slavery like here? How did these people resist their enslavement? Um, those were the kinds of questions that I was asking. And I really discovered that I needed to reframe the story. So if you're looking at it from the pro-slavery perspective, framing it not as a struggle to bring slavery to Kansas and Missouri, which is often how it, it's described, but framing it more as a struggle to strengthen the system that already existed here. I think if you look at it that way and you reframe it that way, that, that changes things. And if you're looking at it from the perspective of the free staters who were coming, framing Bleeding Kansas not as a struggle to prevent slavery from spreading into the West, but really thinking about how they're working to demolish a system that already existed here to prevent that system from growing. You know, I think that's a different question. 
And I think when you reframe it that way and you understand that slavery was an institution already present in the region, that then brings up all sorts of other questions about how we think about slavery's expansion, how we think about border politics, how we think about the coming of the Civil War. It can really potentially change the way that we look at this entire period. Now, as you're kind of getting into the project and you're kind of getting into these sources, you know, what materials are you looking at? What archives are you visiting? What even places are you going to? That's a great question. Uh, there isn't a lot of work done on slavery as an institution on the border, partly because there are very few sources. And so really I had kind of a challenge in front of me so I did research at a lot of the places that you would expect. I went to the State Historical Society of Missouri. I went to the Kansas Historical Society, went to the National Archives branch in Kansas City and also uh, the National Archives in Washington, DC. But it was also really necessary for me to dig into sources in smaller repositories. So I also visited smaller historical societies like the Jackson County Historical Society, which is an independent, because I knew that there were a few sources at these larger archives, but if I really wanted to try and create a more comprehensive story, I would really need to do a lot of digging. And there aren't that many references to slavery in Kansas as an institution. And when you're looking at Missouri, a lot of the sources about slavery tend to focus on central Missouri, or they tend to focus on St. Louis. So I was not looking at either of those regions or either of those parts of Missouri, right? I'm looking at the border. So really I knew that I had to kind of dig in and look for anything and everything that I could find. So I looked at the things that you might expect in terms of primary sources, things like you know letters and diaries and such. But I also looked at a lot of public records because I found those to be really rich. So probate records, tax inventories, census data. I also did a lot of work in pension records of black men who served in the Union Army. So it really was casting a pretty broad net to try to get at whatever I could possibly find that would give me some insight into how enslaved people were experiencing the Bleeding Kansas period and the period before that and, and the period of the Civil War as well. So kind of a lot of different places and a lot of, a lot of really deep archival work was necessary. Now, thinking of this, you know, Kansas and Missouri border, um, who was living in this in this borderland area prior to the Civil War? We can think of not only people who are moving there, but also populations that had lived there for several generations. Well, that's yeah. In my book, I really wanted to emphasize the diversity of this region. Uh, there are a lot of people living here prior to the Civil War. I actually call it in my book a cultural crossroads because you have indigenous nations like the Kamza and the Osage that had been in the region for centuries. You also have emigrant Indian nations like the Shawnee, the Potawatomi, the Wyandotte, those are just a few examples. And they're arriving in the 1830s and 1840s during the process of Indian removal. You also have Northerners of various ethnicities who are coming, you have white Southerners, largely from upper South states like Tennessee and Kentucky, but also from the deep South. You have free African-Americans, you have enslaved men and women, you have Mexican nationals who are coming here from Santa Fe once the Santa Fe Trail opens in the 1820s. So you really have a very diverse 
region here, uh, it really was a borderland, kind of the last center of American settlement before you hit the high plains. So it's, it's a really fascinating area to study because when we think of the border today, we think of the border war between Kansas and Missouri. But that border didn't exist in that form exactly in the period that I'm studying. It was really constantly evolving. So for a while there, there, there was no border really. Then you have Indian territory that's created and you have what is today Kansas that is functioning as a place for these immigrant Indian nations to come after they've been removed. So you have a border, but it's not a politicized border. And then of course, including Kansas, it becomes politicized. So it's really constantly evolving. And one of the major themes of the book is that this is a place of mobility. <laughs> Even for the enslaved population, this is a place that's characterized by the movement of people. People are coming in, people are leaving, people are here temporarily. And it really is sort of the swirling mass of humanity on the border. Now, speaking of enslaved people and, and kind of their mobility, certainly that's a topic we'll discuss through, throughout our conversation. But one thing that really struck me was your, your points about how this area transitions from being a society that has slaves or a society with slaves to one that is kind of an entrenched slave society. So how did this transition take place? So this term, or these terms, a society with slaves and slave society are borrowed from, as you know, historian Ira Berlin. And so kind of in the simplest terms, his definition of a slave society is a society where slave labor was central to the society and the economy. Uh, whereas in a society with slaves, it was more marginal. So on the Kansas-Missouri border, it kind of depends where you're looking and also the time period that you're looking at. So I would describe it a sort of a, a transition that comes in fits and starts. So Missouri definitely was uh, more in line with a slave society for at least part of the period before the Civil War. In the earliest years of settlement on the border, there were quite a few white settlers coming from upper South states like Kentucky, like Tennessee, and they brought their slaveholding values with them. Now, they weren't all necessarily slaveholders themselves, but they'd been raised in that culture and that society. So slaveholding was particularly strong in places like Jackson County and Clay County, which are both in the Kansas City metro area today. So in those places, we see a, more of a slave society kind of developing. In other places, you see more of a society with slaves. If you look further south in, say, Vernon County, that is a, an area where the enslaved population is much smaller. But I think one of the factors here is that chattel slavery first came to the region all the way back in the 18-teens and the early 1820s. There were enslaved people working in tobacco and hemp fields around Fort Osage. Uh, the Shotos used enslaved labor at their trading posts in the Kansas City area. So slavery was already established well before the Civil War. And so as more and more white settlers come out to the region, they are often settling in sort of pockets of strong pro-slavery sentiment if they are themselves pro-slavery. And so they're building these smaller um, societies where slave labor really is pretty central to the economy. And one of the things I argue in the book is that because these counties 
are settled by and founded by people who were generally pro-slavery. They create a, a political, social, legal system that all works to uphold slavery. So even when non-slaveholders or Northerners immigrate to the region, and of course they do, the structural supports for slavery were very much in place. And these slaveholders in these communities wielded a lot of cultural capital. They had a lot of political power, uh, just as they did elsewhere in Missouri. So they worked really hard to transplant that slaveholding culture that they had experienced. They worked really hard to transplant that into the West. So it does, it does kind of depend where you are in the time period that you're looking at. It's less true in Kansas that we have a full-fledged slave society, but that's because slavery in Kansas uh, is much a much smaller institution and it lasts for a much shorter period of time. Now, when we think of the terminology of slavery, there's also there's often the assumption that, you know, uh, the plantation structure, we could think of places mm -hmm. in the deep south or even portions of the of the Carolinas. And yet slavery is diverse in, in its structures in a lot of ways. So how did slavery exist as a system in the Kansas-Missouri border area? Yeah, that's a great point. There are very few large plantations on the border. Um, there are a couple, but they're definitely the exception that proves the rule. So the system that existed on this border is what we call a small scale system. And you can kind of guess what that means based on just the term, right? Um, it's a smaller enslaved population. So uh, to give you a couple of statistics here, or uh, well, one statistic, I guess, uh, the Missouri border counties that I study, and I look at seven counties on the Missouri side of the border. In the Missouri border counties that I study, there were about 10,000 enslaved people in 1850, which is about 12 or 13% of the total population, which would be very different from some place in the Deep South. Now, some places in the Deep South, you might have um, parts of the Black Belt where enslaved people make up 70% or even 80% of the population. And of course, in the Missouri border counties, you know, 12 or 13 percent if you look at the 1850 census. So it's a smaller system. In Kansas, um, it's really hard to pin down good numbers, but we think that there were probably a few hundred enslaved people in Kansas during the bleeding Kansas period. So it is very much a, a, a smaller system in terms of size. So this means then that instead of those large large plantations, you have a farm or a business or a household where there might be two or three enslaved people, sometimes you know one, sometimes five or six. So it's a much smaller system. And one of the things that I did in my book was I uh, really benefited from the work of my colleague at UMKC, Diane Moody Burke. She talks about small scale slavery in Missouri. So there are four hallmarks of it that I've, I've used for my own research and also from her excellent work. And so these four hallmarks or sort of four, four characteristics of small-scale slavery are that you have uh, a prevalence of abroad marriages. Uh, abroad marriages are marriages where the spouses live on separate farms. So enslaved people were not allowed to legally marry, but they often formed committed relationships or even had religious ceremonies uh, to celebrate that union. So abroad marriages are quite common in small scale systems. A second hallmark is there's an active slave hiring market. And slave hiring was the process by which a person could hire enslaved labor on a temporary basis. 
and that happens quite often in small scale systems. You also, a third hallmark of a small scale system is you also have close contact between enslaved people and slave owners. They might be living in the same house. Close contact doesn't mean better contact or more um, sympathetic relationships, but it does mean more close physical contact. And you also had uh, diverse forms of employment outside of just agriculture. So one of the things that you see in small scale systems is a lot of people who are working in trades like blacksmithing or carpentry. You have a lot of, especially women working as domestic servants. So there's a lot more diversity to uh, the forms of labor that you're doing in a small scale system. So this speaks to what you, what you said in your question about how slavery is a much more flexible system than I think many people realize. And especially in these small scale contexts, it can really be adapted to a variety of circumstances. So it's not just a system that works in a plantation model, which is often what many people see when they watch films about slavery or read um, narratives about slavery. They often don't see this small scale side of the system. Now, thinking about bleeding Kansas, it's a, it's a topic that is kind of often discussed as a kind of mm -hmm. to the American Civil War. And in traditional narratives, you know, there is a, a central focus on, you know, the white residents of this border area and the violence they're inflicting upon one another. And you kind of discussed it at the beginning of our conversation about how you were encountering the stories of enslaved people and realizing perhaps their information, their, their story was not being fully fleshed out. So in looking at these enslaved people, you note that they're not marginal in this bleeding Kansas struggle. How did you come to that conclusion with your materials? I think a lot of it comes from insisting on thinking outside of the box. The violence that occurred during Bleeding Kansas is certainly significant. You know, it makes national headlines. But I think if we're focusing only on that, it obscures the fact that these were real people's lives that we're talking about. I think often in traditional narratives, slavery is treated as this sort of abstract concept that people are arguing over. And you don't really see the human component to that. And I think it's really easy to lose sight in that traditional focus of the fact that slavery was a coercive institution that brutalized people. It tore them from their families. All of this was done in the name of making a profit. And so there are people who are experiencing this in very visceral, tangible ways. And the fact that traditional narratives don't necessarily focus on that, I, I see as an absence that needed to be corrected. And I don't mean, of course, <laughs> to denigrate any of the great work that's done on the politics of Bleeding Kansas or the violence or anything of that sort, because all of that work is really important in telling the story. But I saw this gap there that I thought really needed to be addressed because, like I said just a second ago, these are real people's lives. These are people who've been enslaved and their stories matter just as much. And when we look at Bleeding Kansas, it's also interesting, I think, and important to see how these people were experiencing all of that unrest and all of that violence. Because what they're doing is they're watching, they're waiting, they're hoping to use that unrest as an opportunity to free themselves. So in their own ways, 
these enslaved people on the border. They're fighting to make Kansas free as well. They're just doing it in different ways. They're doing it by escaping. They're doing it by resisting their owners. These are their, their techniques and their strategies. But I think that needs to be a bigger part of the story. So when we think about bleeding Kansas, we absolutely do need to understand you know, the key uh, uh, political figures of the period, um, some of the main events, the Sack of Lawrence is an example. But we also need to remember that there are people who are experiencing slavery and are watching this and are waiting for the opportunities to join the fight and to, to really take advantage of this unrest and find ways to make themselves uh, free as a result of all of this turmoil around them. Now you mentioned there about kind of the waiting and the watching. I think that's a really a, a powerful uh, visualization, uh, you know, seeking freedom, but you know, there is so much going on around them. And when we think about kind of the end of slavery uh, in this period, of course, there's a conversation about the Emancipation Proclamation, its impact upon slavery in the Confederate states or states in rebellion, you know, the 13th Amendment, certainly in 1865. But what was the status of slavery in both Kansas and Missouri at the time of the American Civil War? Well, in Missouri, there were around 115,000 enslaved people recorded in the 1860 census. And about 14,000 of those were in the seven Missouri counties that I study. So there is a, a sizable enslaved population in Missouri at the time of the war. And slavery remained legal in Missouri throughout the war. Now, of course, <laughs> to kind of piggyback onto the previous question, enslaved people were definitely taking advantage of the chaos, advantage of in the political instability, guerrilla warfare, all of this to make their escape. Some black men joined the Union Army. They were fighting in units like the first Kansas colored, the second Kansas colored. And they're really the first to recognize that this was a war of emancipation. So enslaved people, again, when the war starts, they're waiting and watching, but slavery is technically legal in the state throughout the war. As for the Emancipation Proclamation, it didn't apply to Missouri because as you said just a second ago, it only applied to states that were in rebellion or parts of states in rebellion. And Missouri did not secede from the union. Now, of course, you could argue that in some places there is absolutely a rebellion taking place in Missouri, uh, but technically the state did not secede. So the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to Missouri. A gradual emancipation law was passed in Missouri in 1863 it would have outlawed slavery after July 4th of 1870 and replaced it with a form of indentured servitude. It was not until July 1865 that slavery was officially abolished in the state. And this was almost a year before the ratification of the 13th Amendment. So through the course of the war then, slavery was still legal in Missouri. But I wanna again emphasize that enslaved people are taking advantage of this chaos. And there's a statistic that I think is telling here, and that is that between 1860 and 1870, the African-American population in the seven border counties that I study, the African-American population decreased by about 25%. That's between 1860 and 1870. Now, of course, there can be um, complex explanations for this, but I think it suggests that a significant number of enslaved people were leaving these border counties during the war or shortly after the war. 
And so there is this, I think, real sense among the enslaved population in Missouri that this is going to be their opportunity. So they don't wait, in other words. Uh, they don't wait for the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, they don't wait for the 13th Amendment. Now, uh, if you look at the Kansas side of the border, uh, slavery had ended before the Civil War. So the 1860 census recorded two enslaved people in Kansas. Census data is not always perfect, but I think it at least tells you that the enslaved population was very, very small. And then of course, Kansas entered the Union as a free state in January of 1861. So slavery had ended in Kansas. Uh, you do see a lot of African-Americans from Missouri, Texas, Arkansas, Indian Territory, who during the war escaped slavery and come into Kansas. And so you see a growing black population in towns like Leavenworth and Lawrence and Fort Scott. So slavery is not legal in Kansas, but the population uh, is growing in the state as a result of this this mass movement of people out of the South and out of states where slavery was still legal. I think that subject of migration and movement of people is so and so important in looking at this, especially with Missouri. You know, it's surrounded on three sides by mm -hmm. 1861, our free states essentially. So the ability to, for enslaved people to escape to a free state is quite high, especially on the border, um, as you're kind of focusing on. So at the end of your book, you're really discussing kind of the migration in and around this Civil War period. Um, and what I thought was particularly striking was we think of the exodusters, you know, going to mm -hmm. later on after the war, but there seems to be a movement into Kansas much earlier than that that people kind of don't often think about. Yes, exactly. So the exodus is in the 1870s, and it's also a very important story. But absolutely, there are lots of enslaved people and formerly enslaved people who are coming into Kansas during the war and after the war um, and before the war too. And there are, I think, a lot of myths and misconceptions about the Underground Railroad. There is a lot of misinformation about the Underground Railroad on the internet. But it is absolutely true that enslaved people fled across the Missouri border into Kansas before the Civil War. There was, in fact, an underground railroad system. So that mass movement, it absolutely begins before the war. Now, we don't have concrete numbers, but we think that at least a few thousand escaped before the war. And many of them were people who were enslaved in Missouri. Some were coming up from Indian Territory or Arkansas, but most of them were enslaved in Missouri before making their way to Kansas. And this was one form of resistance. So the Underground Railroad definitely existed. But the point that you make is absolutely correct that this mass movement of people begins well before the war, continues into the war. And then of course, the Exodus movement in the later years of Reconstruction is part of that longer story. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Kristen. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>